animal fights rivet your attention, but the battle that Daniel saw between a ram and a he-goat predicted the result of a world war between Persia and Greece. Then he looked into the future, and he saw the rise of a king who thought he could stop the holy sacrifices in Jerusalem and strut all the way to heaven. With our study leader Dave Wurzen, open your Bible to Daniel chapter 8 and the conflict between nations. It must have been a holiday time because my kids were up visiting, and it must have been kind of at a nice time of the year, although in Texas that could be just about any time, because we were out on our back porch. We built this, you know, rugged back porch, and we're all gathered there, and suddenly there was an incredible ruckus in the yard next door to us. My neighbor is Greek, and at that time, now he has a bunch of really high-powered sheep, but at that time he had some high-powered goats. And for many years, he was losing some of those goats with coyotes at night. So he got a donkey to go in and babysit them. And all of a sudden, we just heard this wham. And we heard all this, you know, the the donkey making all kinds of donkey noises and everything. And some of the kids can make those noises. And man, it was an incredible ruckus right next door to us. So we all turned and we looked at him. This man, this great big he goat with great big ramming horns would get back and he would just, you know how they do, would get his feet going and he would just shake his head and get those horns going and then he would charge right at that donkey. And the donkey, like an idiot, would just lift his head and let that just bam, right into his chest. You know, when we watch this, the donkey would just stand there like this, kind of like a prize fighter saying, go ahead and hit me, go ahead and hit me. And then that goat would get all revved up And he'd charge again, shake his head, and wham, just hit that donkey. Well, this was fascinating to our kids. You know, an animal fight. How many of you have ever seen an animal fight? Man, it captures your attention. Man, we're just riveting. All of a sudden, you know, this happened about four times, right into the donkey's chest. Finally, the donkey just got tired of it. He just turned around, and when the goat charged, he went boom and sent that donkey just about 15 feet up in the air, spun him around. That was the end of the fight. Animal fights rivet our attention. As we turn to Daniel chapter 8 today, the vision that Daniel has three years after the vision that we studied the last time we were together, Daniel has another vision, and it's about animal fights. It's not about a fight between a he-goat and a donkey, but it's actually about a ram, a great big ram, that has two horns where one of the horns is larger than the other one, and then it's kind of like a unicorn goat that is moving really rapidly, and this unicorn goat hits the ram. And so as we turn to Daniel chapter 8, just read it, and you can kind of get into the vision for yourself. Daniel chapter 8 begins like this. In the third year of the king Belshazzar's reign. So we're still back in the time of the Babylonian Empire, before Cyrus the Great has conquered the city of Babylon, and Daniel's high up in the Babylonian diplomatic corps. It says that Daniel had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. So he's having this visual, kind of like a mental videotape, you might say. So all the kids that are here, uh, you know, this is a much better equivalent to watching an incredibly powerful graphic video game. If you think about looking at the graphics in a video game and all that takes place, that'll give you an idea about the way that the Lord God of heaven is talking to one of our brothers in the Old Testament. 
It says that in my vision, now he's going to tell us what happened. He was in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. And so just to give you a little background on that, in this time, which is really now it's about seven years before the Persians under Cyrus conquered the old Babylonians, Susa is about 200 miles to the east of Babylon, which was the capital of the ancient Babylonian Empire. In this time period, Susa is just an eastern outpost. It's now what would be in the country of Iran, and Iran and Iraq are completely different ethnically. They're very different in their history. Often in our present day as Americans, we get all those things tied up and confused. But uh, the east of Babylon, is you all know now because of all the wars we've been fighting, is the country of Iran. Susa is the ancient fortress And in the Persian Empire, it becomes their dominant city. So, for example, the books in the Old Testament, Nehemiah and the book of of Ezra and also the book of of, uh, Esther, they're all centered in this ancient Persian capital of Susa. But it's very interesting, while before it becomes this great city, before it rules the world, Daniel either is transported visually just because he's having this vision, or maybe he was even there as a diplomat for the Babylonian Empire. We don't know. But it's very interesting because the entire setting of this vision is going to go from Persia to the next empire that takes over, and then how that empire is split up. So let's read a little bit further and see what Daniel saw. He says, I looked up, and there I was beside the Uli Canal. That's one of the little, a man-made canal, not too little, but a pretty big river, kind of like the East River in New York, only it's man-made. And around these ancient cities, they would have waterways, and it would be a way of protecting them, be a fortification for them and a protection. Daniel standing, just like Ezekiel talks about his visions coming before some of the Babylonian rivers, Daniel's doing the same thing. He says, he looked up. And there before me was a ram with two horns. When I was a kid in New York, we used to raise these rams, especially in the summertime. We'd have them so that they would be present for all the kids. And they can definitely get very honorary, and they definitely like to do their thing with goats. It says here this ram has two horns standing beside the canal. So it's related to Susa, which gives us an indication, putting the clues together. We have an idea that this is a symbol of the Persian Empire, it's sitting beside the, the canal, and its horns were, were long, and one of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. We put that together with what you've already learned. Those of you that are younger, they like to put together uh, crossword puzzles, or you like to do the, the word things in the Time magazine on Sunday morning. It's very similar. What did Daniel tell us in chapter 7? He talked to us about a bear that was raised up on one side. Now, the next chapter, he's talking to us about a ram who has one horn that's more prominent than the other, and we can put those two together, and it begins to identify this is the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medes, which were the people that lived to the north of Babylon, were the ones that began to strut their stuff and began to achieve military victories and begin to exert their influence. They begin to put rumblings north of Babylon and challenging the Babylonian Empire. They grew up first. But then the Persian, Cyrus, rose up with them. They came to an agreement, and the Persians actually became the dominant partner. Kind of like in World War II, it would be an example, like the English were fighting the Germans, 
and they're holding their own, and you hear all those stories about them fighting off the Luftwaffe, and America's holding back. But then Pearl Harbor hits, and we jump in with the British, and we become the dominant horn. We become the dominant influence. In fact, after World War II, we became the dominant influence of the world. That'll give you a modern-day equivalent of what was happening here in the ancient world. The Medes rose up first. They begin to make trouble for the Babylonian Empire. The Persians rise up after them under Cyrus. Cyrus has the charisma and the power to unite them. He becomes the General Eisenhower of the Medo-Persian synthesis and the union, and they're able to defeat the Babylonians, which we studied about when it talked about the fall of Babylon. That's what Daniel's capturing a vision of. If I watched, and it said that the ram charged, he charged towards the west. So the Persian Empire under Cyrus charged towards the Holy Land, towards what's now this, the country of Syria. It charged even as far into what's now modern-day Turkey. It charges to the west. It charges to the north. So if you think of Babylon being the center of their empire after the Persians conquered it, they started moving. Uh, the area that I just mentioned would be a little bit north of Baghdad, the modern area of Syria, the area of Turkey, and then even in the Caucasus Mountains, that whole area, they start to subdue the tribes and start to put a barrier to keep the people that would attack their empire. So they're charging to the west. They're charging to the north, and they charge to the south. They go all the way down through the Holy Land, and they begin to exert their influence against what used to be the mighty power of Egypt. And you have this great conflict of the superpower, and the Persian empires were able to conquer all the then-known world, one of the biggest empires that's ever existed. If you know a little bit about history, you also know that the Persians go all the way through Turkey, and they begin to do rumblings. They begin to strut their horns around Greece. This is 150 years before the one that we're going to really focus on this morning. If you go to see the film 300, it's all about this horrible, ugly Persian emperor that's coming. And it's very cartoonish, but it pictures this great Persian invasion from the east and very evil and very destructive. And the Spartans at Thermopylae are able to hold off the Persian hordes because they're trying to get through this very narrow pass. Well, actually, the Persians devastated a lot of Greece. They murdered a lot of people. They took a lot of women captive. They murdered a lot of children. Left this incredible horror in what you know today is now Greece and then the northern part of Greece, which in the ancient world was called Macedonia. And so all that's going place, and that's what Daniel's seeing a vision of. This ram represents this emperor, the Persian emperors, one after another, that's attacking to the north, they're attacking to the west, they're attacking to the south. He says, no animal could stand against him and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. That's a key thing that I want you to really understand. As the nations strut their stuff, and this is true whether you're in business, whether you're in government, whatever field you may be in, there's a part of us that says, I want to do as I please. How many of you have ever said, I just want to have a day where I do what I please. And how many of you have ever said, I want to become great? Now, most of you don't come out like Muhammad Ali and say, man, I'm going to be great. But involved in every one of your lives, there's a part of you that wants to do as you please, and you want to become great. You want to make a name for yourself. You want to be successful. We all have different ways that we want to do that. 
So one of the major drives, if you're a young person, is that I really want to become great. I want to be able to, you know, to really be successful. I want to be able to rule. I want to be able to reign. These ancient empires are just executing that on a big scale. To take Cyrus, for example, Cyrus is one of the most gifted leaders of the ancient world. He's an incredible military genius. He has incredible administrative skills. When Abraham was here, Abraham showed us his tomb, this gigantic tomb that's still there to this day. If I go to the Louvre in France and look at the big exhibits of the Middle East, there's all kinds of stuff about the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire. There's whole sections. You could just spend several days looking at the greatness of ancient Persia. They did as they pleased, and they became great. What all of us need to face is that that's part of what we want to do. But Daniel shows what happens. The reality of life as you sit there is that whether it's your own private career, whether it's the career of your state, the career of your nation, the career of powers that rise up in the world, is they do as they please. It looks like they're invincible, and they become great. But what's going to happen? There's a cycle. And it's very important for you as a child of God because God wants you to know that there was this great ram that rose up, strutted across the pages of history. Great names like Cyrus, Xerxes, Darius rise up. But then there's opposition. Look what happens. Look at the next thing. We have a picture of an enemy that begins to attack. I was thinking about this just like we were just thinking about it. Suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between uh, his eyes, came up from the west. So we've got another national group that begins to rise up, and then there's going to be a prominent individual. It says that he comes from the west, and he crosses the whole earth without touching the ground, which gives us this picture as we're watching this, this spiritual video, this incredible vision. We've got this goat that's moving with tremendous speed. And it has this big single horn in its head. So we begin to crank through the wheel. You know, who in the world could this be? You tell us what the goat's able to do. He comes toward the two-horned ram. Remember I told you about my kids being fascinated, looking at this big goat. Well, this goat isn't going to attack a donkey. Now we got this goat. He's charging from the west, great big horn in his head, and he comes charging towards the ram. And the ram comes charging towards him. Who's going to win? Well, I would expect, you know, and I might be wrong, CT. You can correct me. CT's a retired veterinarian now, but he still has all that incredible knowledge. I don't know whether rams or goats usually win, but in this case, the goat wins. Look what it says. It says that the, he came toward the two-horned ram that I had seen standing beside the canal. So it's at the capital of the Persian Empire, Susa. He charges him with great rage. When armies attack, incredible anger, incredible hatred. As you build up towards war, incredible animosity is unleashed. Incredible you know, fury and conflict and burning rage sets forth. And you can feel this at this goat attacks. He saw him attack the ram furiously. So there's a great battle, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. And the ram was perilous to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him. And none was able to rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great. And I would expect the story to go, and the goat ruled for many, many years. What did I just describe? If you know anything, anybody remember taking a Western sieve? Okay, who does the goat represent? Everybody tell me the goat represents? Nobody will feel stupid. 
because our modern education is so marvelous that everybody knows that you have Medo-Persia and as the Persians keep coming towards the west, they keep occupying all the Greek cities. At that time, there was Greek settlements all over what's now modern-day Turkey. For more than 150 years, 200 years, the, the Persians would devastate those Greek cities, make the people subservient, ruin their economic prosperity. They even came across the sea, and they came into what's now modern-day Greece, and they would devastate Athens. They would devastate Sparta. And that's what's taking place in the Greek-Persian wars. But then a genius arose. There was a man that was trained by Aristotle. He was the leading scholar of the ancient world. In fact, if you're from a Roman Catholic background, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas is your patron Roman Catholic biblical theologian. And what he did was take the, the structure of, of philosophy given by Aristotle, and he used this incredibly skillful reason to present a theology that still dominates Jesuit training to this day. And this man, this young student, was trained by the greatest intellect. He still dominates philosophy in many ways, and if you went to any philosophy department, you would study Aristotle. And Alexander the Great was a little boy, a teenager that was trained by Aristotle. But he's unusual. Most book guys that are really good in philosophy really stink and don't play first-string quarterback for the Longhorns in Texas. But Alexander the Great, every once in a while, there comes a, a guy that has incredible book knowledge, but he also has incredible physical prowess. So he has an incredible mind, but as he walks among men, the men are just captivated by the power of his athletic prowess. In the ancient world, they didn't knock heads on Sunday afternoon. They knock heads as you came across into the Hellespont. And Alexander the Great maybe was involved in the murder of his father, Philip of Macedon. His daddy had developed a technique where they took the Greek armies and they put these big shields in front of them. And then they put spears through those shields. And it was like a massive porcupine. And then they learned how to march really fast. And when you attack them in battle, rather than all the movies you see, you know, where they're open and they have these sword fights and they shoot arrows and everything, the Greek army is covered over like the equivalent of a human tank. And so all the arrows can't penetrate their formation. And this military new technique is used by Alexander. He sweeps through the Hellespont, which is moving into Turkey. And he faces Darius, the Persian, and destroys him. Doesn't capture him, but he just devastates the Persian army. Darius backs up. When you get beat really badly, for example, like at the Battle of Gettysburg, the Confederates, the Lee, had to back up. And he has to move quickly to the south. And he, one of the geniuses of Lee's career is that he was able to get away. One of the great question marks is why in the world didn't meet and the Yankees chase him? Why didn't they devastate him? That's why Lincoln soon changed generals. Well, Darius is doing the same thing. It's the ancient equivalent. They just got beat at Gettysburg at this incredibly powerful battle. Alexander is pushing, pushing, pushing to the east. And so the Persians back up. And they come into what's now modern-day Syria. And in modern-day Syria, Alexander is able to defeat them again. 
doesn't capture Darius, but he's able to destroy most of his army. And they're running like crazy to get back towards Susa, to get back into the modern Middle East. And now you're very well acquainted with Alexander the Great halts his chasing to the west, and he sweeps to the south. If you study about his history, Tyre was an incredibly successful, powerful city. It was built on an island out in the Mediterranean Sea. Alexander was able to build a ramp. He used his engineers, and they worked for months and used all those engineering skills that those of you that are involved in a heavy industry. Mary and I were with a man last night that built these incredibly big dams out in the western part of the United States and incredible projects all around the world. And he's, he's talking to us about dumping tons and tons of, of concrete and placing it just all day long, 24 hours a day for several days in a row as they build this gigantic uh, dam. We have an idea that we only do that in the modern world. Alexander the Great's engineers actually built a causeway that went across the sea and this impregnable city called Tyre Falls. In the news, Gaza, you all know where Gaza is now. It's on the Mediterranean coast as you come north of Egypt. And then you move, start moving up into the Holy Land. There's a group, there's a small series of land where all the Palestinians, millions of them, not all of them, but a major group of Palestinians is in refugee camps. That was always a vulnerable part of the, of the ancient land of Israel. Alexander the Great sweeps south right into Gaza, destroys all opposition in Gaza, goes into Egypt, is able to conquer Egypt. And right there in the pyramids and everything, you have uh, uh, Alexander the Great. You even have a city founded that's going to dominate even till the times of Christ. And after the times of Christ, a gigantic city called Alexandria, after Alexander the Great. He is invincible. He's one of the greatest figures of ancient history. He then sweeps to the north again and then comes for his final attack against the Persian Empire. He meets them, of all places, at Mosul, modern-day Mosul, right near Nineveh. This is very real to us because some of our own kids have been Marines and they've been in Mosul. So it helped to kind of bring ancient history together with modern history. In ancient history, one of the great battles took place as Darius made his final stand against Alexander, Alexander's Greek army, Macedonian army. He started out with about 42,000 men. And as he sweeps across the then-known world, he connects mercenaries. He connects people that join him. He has a benevolent policy where he takes even the men that he defeats and renews their power, even gives them greater power. So he's building a strategic base all the way across, and he just destroys Darius and defeats the old Persian Empire. He goes down to Babylon and sits on Nebuchadnezzar's throne and has all the pomp of a great eastern ruler. He begins to accept even maybe some, some ascriptions of deity. He started out just as a general, a man that fought with his men, and he starts to be influenced by arrogance and not listening. But he sweeps with his army farther to the east. Soldiers in Afghanistan will see the ruins of the cities that Alexander the Great built and the fortresses, Greek cities in Afghanistan. He pressed farther to the east. He goes through the mountain passes. He comes right into the Hindus Valley. He goes right to the Ganges River. When my father made trips, evangelistic crusades into, into India, they had meetings beside the Ganges River. Those are the stories I learned about as a kid. Who would ever dream that this holy river of, of India, Alexander the Great, marched all the way to that river? 
And that's where the men said no. The river's wide and the river's deep. Sounds like a really great song lyric. And Alexander the Great's men said, we've had enough. They had just defeated an Indian army that had hundreds of elephants. And they heard that once they made the crossing of the Ganges, that they would face another Indian army with even more elephants. And the Greek Macedonian soldiers saying, we are tired of elephants. We're going home. And Alexander the Great gave in. He brought back, he set up outposts right there in India. And then he comes back to Babylon. He's 32 years of age. And he's sitting on Nebuchadnezzar's throne. They have gigantic parties. So all of you kids, if you think that the parties that you have down in Deep Elam are new things, or if you get even bigger and as you grow older, you go out to L.A. and you have these gigantic parties, or you go to, the, to New York and you go to Manhattan, you go to these gigantic parties and all the movie stars show up, there's nothing new under the sun. Alexander the Great has all the scholars, all the artists, all the different people are gathered together in Babylon. He's having gigantic parties. Before he was 33 years of age, he got sick, probably because of alcoholism and also because of many wounds that he received in the battle, and he died. What I want you to know is I just told you the story of, if you said, Dave, name the top five human beings in the ancient world, I just told you the story of one of them. But what I want you to read here, look at how Daniel says. It says, the goat became very great. I wanted to give you a description of how great he became, how powerfully he became. But it says, the large horn was broken off. The great horn became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of the heavens. What I want you to learn as we begin this chapter is Alexander the Great is like a symbol of the most powerful, the most successful human being and what you can do as a human being. You can become great and you can do as you please. But what I want every one of you as a father of Jesus to know is nobody that you meet in the military, in business, in education, Whatever field you want to choose, the internet, new technology, as you watch people grow and they become great, and it seems that they do what they please, and a part of you says, like, what I'm learning from Dave on Sunday morning and what I'm learning from this ancient book doesn't really relate to this. Oh, yeah, it does. Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. And what I learned from Alexander is that one of the greatest ancient, gifted, charismatic leaders, men gave their lives by the thousands because of the charisma of this man. He conquered all the then known world, but he couldn't conquer himself. And you know what else he couldn't do? I want to live longer than 32 years. I've already done it. How about you? But you know what? I want to live longer than 60 years, longer than 80 years, longer than 100 years. And what Daniel wants you to grab a hold of is don't ever follow, no matter how gifted they are in military strength, no matter how gifted they are in philosophy, as you're wowed by human charisma, 
Remember Alexander the Great. Because Daniel, before Alexander the Great was even born, hundreds of years before Alexander the Great came to the throne of Greece, God wrote his story. And God told what he would do, and the script of history is written according to our Heavenly Father. At the height of his power, Alexander the Great was gone. And that's what our church is about. It's about focusing on not Alexander, not on any other human political leader or business leader. Our hope is in the only Savior who lived to be about 37. He was 4 or 5 B.C. is when he was born. In 33 A.D., he was cut off just a little bit older than Alexander. Just a few years older than Alexander. From a human standpoint, he never left Israel. Like he never went to Greece. He never went to the Ganges River in India. If I was writing a history of the first century from a secular standpoint, I wouldn't even write about him. Tacitus, the Roman historian, has just a couple lines about him. Suetonius, another ancient historian, has just a couple lines about him. Josephus, the Jewish historian, living right in the first century, has just a couple lines about him, which, by the way, totally fits with the historical reality of what we learn about Jesus in the Gospels. But as you sit here today, you can go and interview people this afternoon. You can ask them, hey, tell me a little bit about Alexander the Great. And very few people in Midlothian will be able to tell you what I just told you about Alexander. But ask kids about Jesus. On Wednesday night, ask the little kids about Jesus. Tell them about Jesus. Talk to teenagers about Jesus. As we began early this morning, Nate Wallace, Tim's son, came to us. He lived here all of his life. He was trained by you. He talked about going away to North Texas and doing the college thing. First couple years, really on fire for Jesus. And then he talked about how as he moved toward the senior year, you know, you begin to slide a little bit, and he started doing his college thing. But then he moved in with some really godly, Christ-like followers of Jesus. And they lived before him an intimate closeness with Jesus. And Nate was just wanting the elders to know, and I want all of you to know, that the Spirit of God is really shaking Nate up to go for two years to Bangkok, Thailand. Bangkok is a city of 10 million. At North Texas, there's about 30,000 students. Big university, becoming bigger all the time. So you North Texans, one I'm praising you a little bit. UT has about 50,000 students. Don, what's A&M at now? 54, there you go. Maybe they're even bigger than UT and Austin now. In Bangkok, listen to this. Nate told us this morning there's a million students in university in Bangkok. And Nate was telling us as a history major who knows a ton about Alexander the Great, Nate never mentioned Alexander the Great. He said, I want to tell them about Jesus. Students in Bangkok. 
need to know about Jesus. You know why? Because we sang, Jesus will never, never be dethroned. Because in 33 AD, Jesus did die. And he did just like Alexander the Great, only he was attacked and he was brutally murdered on the cross. But he yelled out, it is finished, it is finished, it is finished. Your sins are paid for. Justice has been done. Love can flow. Justice and mercy can now kiss. And on the third day, he rose again. Daniel's telling us that the ancient kings, just like the modern kings, can come and go. But Jesus is the one that you live your life for. Jesus is the one that you follow. Jesus is the one you want to tell others about because he's the only human being that conquered the enemy of death and assures us we're going to live forever and ever and ever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I want to ask that you would help us to not do as we please. I'd ask you, Lord, that you would really use the tragic example of Alexander in the ancient world to warn us that you can be really successful doing what you please, but you still can conquer death. And I pray that we won't do as we please, but right now I pray, Lord, that your spirit would move us to move me and to move my brothers and sisters to do as you please. I pray that we would be down on our knees, not worshiping any human king like Alexander, but I pray that we would be down on our knees saying, Lord, we want to do as you please. Let the Spirit of God speak to your heart. Have you been doing as you please this week? It's always going to end in deadness and discouragement. Let's also ask the Lord to help us not to be concerned about our own greatness. Nebuchadnezzar did, and Darius did, and Alexander the Great did. They lived to be great. Our Savior said, the one that is the greatest is the one that chooses to be the least. Just the opposite. So, Lord, I pray that you would use what we've learned in Daniel 8 today to help us not to make it our ambition to become great and successful and powerful ourselves, but to worship and let Jesus be great. Let him be the one that's exalted. And, oh, Lord, I just thank you so much that when we tell this story about Jesus, unlike the story of Alexander, when Jesus was at what looked like his lowest moment the agony of his death, Jesus ignited the most redemptive story that could ever be written. And so, Lord Jesus, we close this service by just thanking you so much that you rose again from the dead.